from my home studio. Welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. I strongly encourage people, if they're if it's possible, to intentionally become close to people on both sides of the conflict because it will break your heart, but it will give you at least some sense of these visceral feelings that are um, part of what people are going to need to find a way to manage. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I'll be joined today by Rabbi Maurice Harris, and we'll be discussing his Evolve essay, Who, If Anyone, Should Be Boycotted? The Ben and Jerry's Controversy. I feel like adding a dun-dun-dun-dun there, but I won't. Um, Harris's December essay was a thoughtful response to the June 2021 decision by Ben and Jerry's to cease selling its products, you know, Cherry Garcia, Fish Food, Chunky Monkey, in Israel's occupied territories, the West Bank. This came after a sustained campaign by BDS activists boycott divestment sanctions to get Ben and Jerry's to pull out of Israel altogether. And Ben and Jerry's decisions seemed to anger pretty much everybody, from a plethora of American Jewish groups, the activists themselves who didn't think Ben and Jerry's went nearly far enough, to the Israeli government, which in accordance with its own, with its own laws, banned the sale of, of the brand in all of Israel and, and pretty much raised a public stink about it and screamed to, screamed to high heavens. So nobody was happy. Now, controversies related to BDS and the broader conversation on Israel, Israel-Palestine, pop up constantly. Yet, for some reason, this story about Ben and Jerry's had a shelf life of, of months, not hours. And maybe it was Ben and Jerry's reputation for social consciousness. Maybe it was Ben and Jerry's cultural panache. Maybe it was the... Um, scope of Israel's response, but for whatever it was, this received coverage in ways that umpteen student government resolutions and town council meetings on Israel haven't. Then in the days leading up to our interview, as I'm doing research, writing questions, another controversy happened. Amnesty International released a 278-page report accusing Israel of apartheid. We'll link to the report in the show notes and Reconstructing Judaism's Response. The lead of the AP story about it read, Amnesty International said Tuesday that Israel has maintained, quote, a system of oppression and domination over the Palestinians going all the way back to its establishment in 1948, one that meets the international definition of apartheid. End of quote, end of the story section. Guiding the Reconstructionist response took up much of Harris's week because he's really the Israel affairs point person at the organization. And we talk about the Ben and Jerry's episode and the amnesty episode within the broader context of the conversation on Israel, whether economic pressure might be helpful, how to evaluate charges of anti-Semitism, and how to be a morally engaged citizen on, on these issues. Now, as I said, Maurice is reconstructing Judaism's point person on Israel, and he's been following the region for decades. And it, it's far for, from academic for him, as we talk about. He's got tons of Israeli family on his mother's side 
Um, he grew up spending summers there. He, he's got plenty of stories. And over the past three decades, he's made lasting efforts to build friendships with Palestinian families. So his thoughts on the ongoing conflicts are complex, informed, and I believe insightful. And I, I think I really pressed him and he, he handled it uh, admirably. And, and, and um, I think we took the conversation to interesting places. One more thing. We recorded this podcast a few days after the start of the Beijing Winter Olympics. And some of our talk actually focuses on China, which is arguably the worst human rights offender in the world. Um, certainly the most powerful economically, diplomatically, one of the most powerful. And we talk about the discrepancy between attention focused on China and Israel, even as we acknowledge, and, and we'll link another article in the show notes, China is playing a growing uh, role within Israel. A Chinese company is operating one of Israel's largest ports. Um, so there's lots of complexity there. So I shouldn't need to say this, and I know with, with our audience, I don't need to say it, but within the broader context, I feel I have to. Rhetoric against discussion of the Chinese government has been used as a pretext um, for harassment and assaults of Asian Americans. And I just don't have the right words to say how hor horrifying and wrong that is. At Reconstructing Judaism, we're committed to building relationships with all groups to make us all safer, freer, and able to live our, our fullest lives. But we really do need to have these conversations about Chinese government, about the Israeli government, talk of government, not people, just as however you feel about Israel's government, no Jews anywhere should, should ever be attacked, assaulted, made unsafe because of the actions of a government. And I know folks, um, that are part of the Evolve community will have this conversation in a productive way. As a reminder, all Evolve essays can be found at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. And reading Maurice's essay will give you a richer listening experience. And because of the nature of this interview, there are sections of his essay, arguments he makes that we just don't get to cover. And if you're interested in nuanced discussion about the Israeli-Palestinian issue, there are plenty of other in-depth essays on the Evolve site. Okay, finally, now to our guest, the reason we're here. Rabbi Maurice Harris is Associate Director for Thriving Communities and Israel Affairs Specialist at Reconstructing Judaism. He is a 2003 graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, and he has served as Associate Rabbi and Head of School at Temple Beth Israel in Eugene, Oregon. He's written three books, most recently, The Forgotten Sage, Rabbi Joshua Ben Hania, and The Birth of Judaism as We Know It. He blogs at theaccidentalrabbi.blog. Rabbi Maurice Harris, welcome to the podcast. So good to see you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So once upon a time, and, and maybe again, you and I saw each other almost, almost daily and would frequently get into conversations about Israel, the Middle East, and sometimes, you know, you or I, usually you probably would, would end up being delayed for whatever urgent thing you had to do next, but, but they were good conversations, right? And, and we, oh, disagree yeah. we disagreed a little, but my tires were never slashed. I don't, I don't think anything, anything ever happened to any of your personal property. So, so um, it's good. It's good to have it, uh, get a chance to try it on, on the air and, um, 
you know, hopefully uh, we can see each other regularly again, again soon. Yeah, I hope so. So we're, uh, we're talking in the second week of, of February and your kind of last week or so has been, has been taken up by this new report that, that came out from Amnesty International related to Israel and its treatment of the Palestinians. It, it, uses, it uses the word apartheid, which is certainly not a new word in connect that critics have used in connection with, with Israel and the Palestinians. So I guess, can you just tell us a bit about what was in the report and why this was such a big deal that, that really re required, seemed like it required a response from, from almost every major Jewish organization, including ours? Well, I think that the amnesty report got a lot of attention in part because it's, you know, the third or fourth report that's come out in the last year and a half uh, that's leveling this charge. And the word apartheid is one of those words that is, it, it's, it's one of the harshest and most intense and evocative words in the English language. And, um, you know, it, it, it emotionally evokes uh, an intense revulsion. So, you know, part of what's, what I think has gotten people's attention is that uh, it is that there's, you know, a trend of human rights organizations, uh, some international and some Israeli, uh, who are bringing up this word in, and, and then they're going on to explain what they mean when they say it. And what they mean is uh, something that's more specific and limited and part of international law. And it's, it's just, um, it gets, it opens up a very complicated and difficult discussion uh, and, you know, Jewish organizations need to be able to respond and also to help their members try to navigate some really, really difficult issues. Can you talk a little bit about how Reconstructing Judaism responded? Well, we, we pulled together our emergency small group of leadership of the Rabbinical Association and of Reconstructing Judaism. And we took some time to also bring in the members of our rather large uh, Israel commission. It's called the right. Joint Israel Commission. And uh, I put together in my staffing role uh, an early draft attempting to uh, speak in, in the institutional voice, which is not the easiest thing to do uh, because it's hard enough to say what you wanna say well when you're trying to speak for uh, an organization that includes diversity of opinion, um, that's that's harder. Uh, but somebody has to get the ball rolling. So. Absolutely, I can always say I host this show, but I'm I'm speaking only for myself. But you know, yeah. So I mean, what in terms of what it meant that we needed to do? It meant that we needed to take time. Uh, it, you know, the report is 280 pages long. In my staffing role, it was really important that I that I read as much of it as I could and, you know, made some notes and did an assessment of how other Jewish organizations were responding. 
and um, and then played the role of shepherding, uh, you know, this group of about a half a dozen people who were listening to many other voices around them, um, and and looking to figure out what you know what could we say that would be true to the movement and its longstanding positions. Um, and that's that's where I think we landed more or less with the statement. We'll we'll link to it on on um, on the show notes. Can you can you give us a can you give us a summary? You know the the summary is, is that Amnesty's report does a very thorough job of documenting a lot of different kinds of human rights abuses that. Uh, that people who are, have worked for a two-state solution and who have worked to oppose the occupation are we're already aware of. Um, but the the report is really comprehensive. It you know it covers hundreds of different um, well-documented examples, and so part of our statement acknowledges that the ongoing work of supporting those forces in Israel that are trying to make Israel achieve its own ideals, um, that that work has to continue, that we continue to oppose the occupation, we continue to support uh, a two-state solution. Um, with regards to the accusation of apartheid, you know, what, what we do with the statement is, is we say, that's not a word that we use to describe describe uh, the basic notion of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. And we pose some tough questions to the authors of Amnesty's report, we, because as we read it, it seems like Amnesty's report is asserting that any kind of Jewish state in part of, of the land that has as a goal and a policy um, the intent of uh, maintaining a Jewish majority, um, or maintaining uh, special rights pertaining to refuge for Jews, that that it seems like their report is saying that that that's an intrinsic part of an apartheid system and and should go away, and that's where we really challenge and question the findings of the report, and we also ask them to explain. Um, why are why do they seem to be standing in stark opposition to another matter of international law, which is that you know Israel's founding as a Jewish refuge and a Jewish homeland is also part of international law, um, and that if if they were going to come out and say that that shouldn't be, um, then from our point of view, we felt like they needed to explain why, um, and and we didn't see that in the report, so it left us with some real concerns. Um, so as you can imagine from what I've just said, um, our statement in typical reconstructionist faction is not tweetable. Um, it is not throwing a log onto the fire of, uh, you know, Israel right or wrong or down with Israel. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, it is also, you know, it's critical of aspects of Amnesty's report, but it's also not willing to just dismiss the whole report out of hand, even though we find some faults with it.
to be transparent, I have not read the, the 200 page, 280 page report. Um, it does seem to be re reiterating for a new, maybe for a Twitter, for a new generation, this Zionism is equals racism charge. And, and um, which, which kind of just makes it a dead letter in, 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 in Jerusalem, right, right off the bat. I mean, just, just saying that means the, the vast majority of, of the Israeli political spectrum is just, is just going to dismiss whatever it says because of that. So I'm guessing this actually isn't, I mean, obviously you can't put yourself in, in the heads of, of the amnesty leadership, but do you have any idea what, any sense, what the goals are? It seems like this is, this is not going to change policy in Jerusalem. Is it, is it to shape the conversation in Europe and the United States? Is it, is it to give fuel to this ongoing investigation in the UN? That's, that's, um, I mean, do you have any sense what, you know, what they hope to achieve? And, and I, I think I'm asking that because I, I, I want us to shape our conversation around what, you know, what might actually, you know, impact policy in, in Israel, however we define that positively, you know, so keeping that yeah. in mind, I'm guessing any sense what, what the goals are behind this? Um. I hate to guess what other people's goals or, or motives are. That's fair. Um, you know, I think that to some degree, the report says what its goals are. And it seems to me like its goals are primarily to try to influence um, the diplomatic community and the, the sort of an, an, an international audience. And um there, I think that they're, the goals of the report are to urge international action um, through diplomatic means to penalize, uh, you know, some of the different um, ongoing practices that the report describes, and to build to build pressure uh, in the hopes of um, that that will result in you know the Israeli government changing some of its policies and uh, in the international community. Um, uniting more clearly toward, towards those efforts. But I've never worked for a human rights organization and um, I spent a little bit of time trying to familiarize myself with you know, some of the other reports and campaigns uh, that Amnesty has been involved with and that Human Rights Watch has been involved with. And I think that it's fair to say that when they pick a subject to do a thorough investigation, um, the results usually are damning. So like Amnesty has a, you know, right now Amnesty has a report out about China and the Uyghurs that accuses the Chinese government of three different crimes against humanity and includes a whole bunch of, you know, recommendations that are similar, like international pressure, economic pressure, et cetera, et cetera. And there, there are reports about these situations, but then there are no reports about these other situations. And they, they don't seem to follow a consistent line of reasoning in terms of which international human rights crimes they, they highlight. Um, so, you know, in the case of China, uh, they, they aren't go for the apartheid charge, but they went for other charges that are also really horrible <laughs> um, in different ways. Um, but as I understand the way that they're saying international law defines apartheid, it seems like they could have 
pursued an apartheid line of investigation with, with China. So, I mean, my guess is that human rights organizations have many different factors that determine where they throw their focus, how they shape their investigations. I would also think that some of what limits them is what kind of information they have access to. Um, compared to China, it's much easier in Israel to get access to documentation of human rights violations. So I'm not sure what to do with all of that. I'm not sure what their motives are, except that I do believe that, you know, on a base level, like I do think groups like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch are sincerely trying to defend some kind of international standard of human rights. Um, but they're big organizations with many projects going on concurrently and lots of people's outside agendas seek to make use of their work in different ways. So that's messy. Well, I would say you read my mind, but we, we talked beforehand and you know, uh, we're, we're, we're meeting during the, the Beijing Winter Olympics. And I do wanna ask a question about, about China. First, I think I wanna to get to Cherry Garcia. I wanna to get to ice cream. I mean, I'm, I'm saying it lightly, but um, you sat down to write about Ben and Jerry's and how it navigated a, um, a real push to, uh, really Ben and Jerry's and its parent company, a push to, to basically pull, you know, cease doing business in, in, in Israel, um, you know, based on similar charges. So I was, I was wondering if you could remind us, remind us sort of what happened there and, and if you want to take a stab at if the Ben and Jerry story has any similarities to the amnesty story and, and, and maybe where, where they're different. Yeah. Well, and I mean, just a small, a, a small correction, if I can. Absolutely. Uh, right? Which is that, so Ben and Jerry's decision was to stop selling their ice cream in the settlements in the West Bank. Um, they, they did not ask to leave uh, Israel or, or discontinue manufacturing ice cream. No, but they, they certainly placed, faced pressure to do so, which is, I guess. My, right. I mean, my understanding is that, that they, their board knew that the result of their announcing that they weren't selling ice cream in the West Bank anymore was going to mean they were going to get booted out of Israel proper. But I mean, I, I you know, I want to, I want to really, I, I feel like the distinctions between what Ben and Jerry's chose to do as a private business and what let's say Amnesty is trying to do with its report are quite significant um, because at the end of the day, um, if you look at a lot of the statements that some of the more mainstream Jewish organizations put out in response to Amnesty's report, um, they all go out of their way to make it clear that they agree that there are human rights violations, especially going on in the occupied territories, and that they oppose those things. And uh, that forms part of their rebuttal of, of Amnesty's charge of apartheid covering all of Israel. And I think that Ben and Jerry's decision, uh, in a way, um, has a relationship to the argument that some of the more mainstream Jewish organizations made about Amnesty. Ben and Jerry's basically said, look, we're not talking about Israel proper. We are talking about the settlements and the occupation in the West Bank. And 
that's a human rights setting that we've decided we're not going to play a role in anymore. You know, they don't say anything about apartheid or about, uh, or make any kind of statement about, you know, scale or scope comparing Israel's human rights record to the human rights records of other countries. Um, they, they simply make it clear that, that after, you know, being on the receiving end of a three-year-long grassroots campaign urging them to boycott Israel entirely, uh, a campaign from parts of the BDS movement, um, that they reached a decision that did not entirely agree with what the, what the pressure campaign was was asking from them. Um, they 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 opted instead for um, a limited and partial decision, and that was a decision that you know left a lot of the boycott Israel people disappointed, and yet it was still a a public rebuke of of Israel in a way that was infuriating to a lot of rank and file Israelis. Um, so they made a decision that made very few people happy. And part of what I wrote in my essay was that uh, I, I thought that was kind of a brave decision to make. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, if, if you were a cold calculating business person, you might, uh, you might think, well, we're a company with a reputation for social justice. So we're going to either land on one side or the other of this hot button issue. And that way we'll guarantee that we secure the loyal business of everybody, at least in one of the two camps. And uh, if you offer a nuanced decision that pleases nobody, except a very small group of people who look closely at it and think that they got it right, um, then you know you potentially hurt your customer base in both camps and you make a you take a stand that is hard to boil down to a tweet and leaves a lot of people scratching their heads so yeah i did wonder was was that decision and an attempt at nuance and and to say we're we're not you know we're not joining this this growing call to delegitimize israel is that you know is that hurt at all in in today's climate that's the hard part is is that you know i i think that i mean that that is exactly the criticism i read some uh bds activists tweeting was that 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 in the aftermath of the decision they were there were a number of bds folks who were tweeting things like um, ben and Jerry's decision legitimizes Israel within the green line, and that's not what we were asking them to do. And the Israeli government basically said what they did was tantamount to to BDS. So each side, yes, <laughs> said each each side is 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 claiming you know a, a loss here. And interestingly. Well, and that's right. I mean, that's because the Israeli government at the time and, and the current one, I think, holds the same position, um, or maybe it's maybe it was the same government at both both times. But um, the Israeli government wants to make the case that any effort to boycott the settlements counts the same as boycotting Israel proper. And um, 
so they're very motivated to come down as hard as they can on anybody who crosses that line. And a lot of these laws that have been passed in the United States in different state legislatures that prohibit the state from doing any business with contractors who boycott Israel uh, have this language uh, included that says, you know, boycott Israel and any territories controlled by Israel. And um, that language is really problematic and it makes it impossible for someone to choose not to do business in the settlements. And that's a choice that some Israelis make every day uh, as, as a matter of their personal beliefs. And, um, you know, a number of Israeli companies have started out having operations in the settlements and then um, have decided to withdraw them. If, if not for ethical reasons, then as a matter of public relations. And um, uh, th this is why I thought it was worth writing about Ben and Jerry's decision, because I think that um, lost amidst the angry shouts of people on both sides uh, is the fact that here's a company that makes a decision that actually makes the green line important. And in terms of recent history, I think a lot of people who were supporting the two-state solution and then watching its prospects erode um, year after year, um, were starting to give up any hope that the green line uh, would ever matter again. And this decision actually thrust the green line back into the spotlight. And, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll see if other companies follow suit or if the trouble that that Unilever has to face as a result of this step uh, discourages other companies from, from going there. If you're enjoying this interview, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. Positive ratings really help other people find out about the show. And please hit the subscribe button and be among the first to know when a new episode appears. If you're a new listener, welcome. Check our back catalog for lots of other groundbreaking conversations. If you go way back to our trending Jewish days, you can even find another interview with Rabbi Maurice Harris. Okay, now back to our interview with Rabbi Maurice Harris and our discussion of Ben and Jerry's. You did mention China and, and, and you do in your essay bring up and raise the double standard, you know, argument that BDS opponents really, you know, is a, is a signature argument that, that why are you signaling out Israel when Syria, Iran, China, and Russia are doing this and, and you're not saying as much. Um, you know, in the Ben and Jerry's example, I don't, I don't think you can buy Cherry Garcia. I'm, I'm not an ice cream person, so I don't, I don't know all my, <laughs> all my ice cream flavors, but I don't think you can buy it in, in, in Beijing and, and Shanghai. I'm, I'm told, I'm told Una, Unilever, I think it's how you pronounce it, which is the parent company, imports um, tomatoes from actually the, the Western region of, of China that is so problematic where, where the Uyghurs live and, and are really, however you want to describe it, uh, you know, suffering uh, unbearable, you know, perhaps ethnic, ethnic cleansing right now. So, you know, as far as we know, you know, this company is doing business with China and, and 
you know, you mentioned that Amnesty has has issued a number of critical reports on China. This is, you know, maybe the second most powerful country in the world right now. Huge, huge market. I mean, the Olympics are there. No, nobody seems to want to cross China, and and um, we're not, you know, we're not seeing every week in every college town and every, you know, a, a new resolution to to censure China. We're really seeing it. Aimed at aimed at Israel, and I wonder if you can you know if you can explain that if that's if you find it problematic if you if you find it a you know a crutch you know that that BDS opponents use that really doesn't answer the substance like how do you make sense yeah. of make sense of this? Um, I think that what are the answers, Rabbi? Yes, of course, no problem. Um, so I do think that on a global scale that there historically has been a double standard um, and, or to say it in another way, it's super obvious that a number of different international human rights bodies, whether it's the UN or other uh, similar kinds of organizations have this very mixed record of on the one hand, sometimes doing really amazing life-saving work. And on the other hand, being used politically by groups with different agendas. And one of the ways that that has played out over the last 70 years is that, um, is that Israel has garnered this insanely disproportionate number of condemnations and resolutions. And in the aggregate, in the big picture, that phenomenon, I personally believe that there is an anti-Semitic element to that phenomenon. The problem I have when people raise the double standards argument in a specific case is that it seems like the implication of their argument is that because there has been this larger problem with a double standard, Therefore, we cannot talk about the specifics of this case. And that if we do talk about them, uh, that you're kind of giving fuel to the fire of the double standard and therefore you're engaging in some form of anti-Semitism or, or giving aid and comfort to anti-Semites. Um, and that argument doesn't wash with me. Um, so I think it is fair to ask a company like Ben and Jerry's, how does your decision, your public statement of making a moral decision that regards an Israeli policy, how does that fit into your overall pattern of decisions and public statements? And for me personally, what I would look for is, do they have a pattern of engaging in public criticism of governmental policies on a variety of issues in the countries where they do business. Um, and it's also important to remember that Ben and Jerry's, even though Unilever owns them, has the, the, they were purchased with the right to maintain a, a high degree of independent decision-making and they have no control over what their parent company does, you know, that doesn't include. Right. So, you know, to me, it seems like um, Ben and Jerry's has a pretty solid track record of getting involved in 
uh, social justice issues uh, in ways that could invite controversy. Um, you know, I believe they, I, I believe they've done a, a Colin Kaepernick flavored ice cream. They've, they've been, it's not weird for Ben and Jerry's to do, you know, when they started out, they were doing anti-nuclear um, stuff. If you bought a Ben and Jerry's peace pop um, in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, they were donating to this very liberal advocacy organization that was trying to um, eradicate nuclear weapons and, and critical of the U S government. So, um, you know, I, I feel like, I I'm satisfied. I, I don't I don't think Ben and Jerry's is guilty of engaging in a double standard. Um, at the same time, uh, I I doubt that Ben and Jerry's has a comprehensive, systematic, equal playing level playing field of of public uh, concern and critique. I'm sure that Ben and Jerry's also is is buffeted by the kinds of issues that people mount campaigns around. I, I, could, I would guess they would never have spoken out about this issue if they hadn't been on the receiving end of a fairly substantial public campaign. And, uh, you know, you can hear my, my sympatheticness to them in, in, in how I describe this, because to me, it seems like they went ahead and agreed to examine the issue but they drew their, but they drew an independent conclusion about what to do about it. That wasn't the conclusion that the pressure campaign people wanted them to draw. But in terms of the larger issue of uh, uh, double standards, I do think that that is a serious problem. And I'd love to give you an example. Um, there's an organization called the OIC, the Organization for Islamic Cooperation. It's the single largest organization of um, Muslim majority nations um, in the world. And they are getting a lot of criticism from Muslim organizations in different parts of the world who care a lot about what's happening to the Uyghurs. And the reason they're getting this criticism is that they're basically not saying anything about it. And um, they keep having public meetings with Chinese officials that end up in photo ops and the announcement of new business deals and that refer only obliquely to, uh, we also spoke with the Chinese leadership about concerns regarding minorities in China in, in Western regions. Like they don't, won't even say Uyghurs. Um, now this organization just released a statement um, applauding Amnesty's report about Israel and apartheid. Um, now to me, there's your poster child of double standard and hypocrisy and scope and scale um, because the scope and scale of what's being done to Muslims in, in China is off the charts com sure. compared to- and Israel's. And, and, and just to, I mean, just to complicate it farther, I mean, China um, is 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 you know gaining an increasing sphere of influence in Israel, and and Israel's not you know raising raising alarms about this, and that you know just um, right. And it's actually just I, I don't know if you could say anything about it. It's just it's just 
I mean, obviously in so many ways we're, we're living in a weird time, but in, but in, but in, in terms of Israel and it, and its relationship with the world, it might be the most, I mean, I'm 45. It might be the most schizophrenic time I can remember. I mean, we've got, we've got major, you know, reputable organ, you know, international organizations accusing it of apartheid. It's, you know, it's, um, you know, the, the UN is probably as critical as ever. It's, 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 you know, and certainly in terms of American college campuses, it's, it's standing couldn't be lower. And yet, and yet, you know, Israeli foreign ministers are, are welcome in, in, in certain Arab capitals now, which was unthinkable. And, and um, I don't know if you could, you could explain all this or if it's just a, just a comment, but it's just, it's just such a weird time. I don't, I don't, I, I can't, and, and we've got, we've got an Arab party serving in Israel's government for the first time. It's just, I don't know what to do with all that. I don't know if you ever just throw up your hands and say, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how it makes sense of this, but. Right. Um, look, it's, I think it's really difficult. I think it's difficult for people who are professional uh, strategic analysts, you know, in that part of the world who, who, you know, have lots of training and know all of the decision makers themselves and are in on the backroom conversations and, they're not good at, at predicting, you know, which way the winds are going to blow in, in that part of the world. Um, but I think you've done a really good job of describing parts of the, the reality, right? That, that on the one hand, it, Israel's reputation and its standing uh, is really, really battered um, in, in lots of parts of the world and lots of subcultures uh, in, in, in North America. Um, at the very same moment that all of these um, unprecedented, remarkable, and in, and in many ways promising things are happening. And I, I happen to be among those who also regard the, uh, the election uh, and, and taking of office of, of the current coalition in, in Israel to be a, a really important and, and um positive development, not just for Israel, but as uh, part of what I believe is a growing counter trend to the authoritarian hmm. uh, moves that happened in so many countries. And then and now we've started to see some, some of the pendulum swinging back and, and people willing to set aside intense disagreements um, in order to ma maintain the viability of their democracy. Um, and I, I think that's the rationale behind the current uh, Israeli government. So, you know, best of times, worst of times. I mean, um, look, is, Israel's human rights violations tend to tend to find their way into uh, the spotlight in, in ways that few other countries do. Um, I do think that that folks who defend Israel and try to make that point are correct. Um, so, ironically speaking. As, as Israel's relationship with the UAE and Bahrain warms and with Morocco warms and as the possibility looms on the horizon of normalization with, with the Saudis, maybe one day, one of the byproducts of that is that, uh, you know, I'm starting to see more news stories um, about systemic and horrific human rights violations that are daily business in those Arab countries. Um, and 
those governments don't want that scrutiny. You know, so to me, it's like the potential exists for those governments to discover that one of the prices of sort of letting go of the old regime of we, we, we will have nothing to do with the Zionist entity um, it, it involves, uh, you know, having to also be willing to sort of walk more into a spotlight of Western norms around investigative journalism and, um, and the human rights concerns that go with that. And, you know, the Israeli government doesn't like being scrutinized like that. And these governments don't like it. Um, and, you know, that could, that could lead somewhere positive. Um, I, I want to hope that it can. It's a question I want to ask that, I mean, I'm, I'm asking, I'm asking you and your opinion, and I, I don't expect you to, to, to speak for, you know, the organization we work for, but I mean, it seems, you know, there's no imminent pullout of the West Bank on, on the horizon. There's at least as far as we can see, no, no immediate chance of a full, you know, end of conflict agreement. And, 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 you know, I think there'd be a decent argument that, that doing so hastily would be, would be dangerous for Israel. But I'm wondering, do you, do you see um, a policy goal or, or, or a public pressure campaign that, you know, you know, that might be something that could influence, you know, actually influence the, the way Palestinians are, are, are treated? Because as far as I can tell, um, the human rights of Palestinians in the West Bank has, has really fallen off the, the Israeli political conversation. It's not, it's not top of mind if it, if it once was. And, and, you know, we have, we really have no idea how many, you know, where the line is drawn between necessary, you know, what's, what's reasonably necessary and, and, you know, how many home delition, demolitions, how many detentions, how many, you know, take your pick are, are done, you know, just to inflict, you know, to inflict harm that are unnecessary. So I, I guess I'm wondering, is there, do you see any, any, any discussion that, that could make, you know, make lives better for Palestinians and, and maybe set us on, on the road to a two-state solution or get us back in that direction? Um. And and tell me if the yeah. premise of my question is 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 way off because I'm 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 okay with that. No, I'm 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 processing I'm processing it and and thinking about all of those things, including if that's the way I would frame the question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <sighs> um, you're supposed to ask really simple questions as a journalist, and I'm and I'm like giving on clause after clause after clause. That is you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I mean. It's very hard. Uh, it's I'm not sure where to start because many years ago I made I made the decision to not let this be a an abstract question. Um, I, I purposely um, took advantage of opportunities I had to travel to Israel and Palestine and spend time in in the West Bank and get to befriend and get close to uh, a couple of different families. Uh, multi-generational families. And um, so when I picture this, the things you're talking about, um, I picture people I know um, in 
situations that I don't know how I would tolerate. And um, uh, so I guess what I would say is that I don't know about how the international community should work or you know, whether it's more helpful or more hurtful to making things better for a group like Amnesty to um, level the charge of apartheid. But I do know that I can't imagine how Palestinians and their closest supporters would do anything other than continue to try to um, get their rights at, at the very least the the rights that are uh, most that are the most difficult to not have be part of your daily life like freedom of movement and so I guess what I would say is I believe that that those efforts to try to achieve, equality and and human rights are going to continue. Um, they're going to continue uh, in the Palestinian territories. And at some point, Israelis are going to have to make the kind of long-term decisions about where their borders should be and what the rules are for how they live with Palestinians um, that they've been able to put off. And um, it's easy to say they've been able to put those things off as if, you know, they never, I'm not suggesting they didn't try at different moments or take big risks at different moments. Um, I'm just saying that they've been able to put it off. And, and for the last couple of decades, their leadership has really just wanted to keep kicking it down the road. Hmm. So now there are some potential opportunities, but it depends on a number of different actors. And um, I don't, I might be a fool to put any hope at all in governments like the billionaire oligarchs of the UAE and Bahrain, that they have something Israelis have tasted now and that Israelis really want. And that's the ability to have a normalized set of relationships with, with neighboring countries in the region and do business and see the Israeli flag next to the flag of a sovereign Arab state in, in multiple states, Israelis are over the moon about that. That's a game changer for them. So if those countries are willing to leverage their newfound standing with Israel in support of their Palestinian brethren, then to me, that's a lever, a lever of pressure that hasn't been tried yet. It also might make it less scary for Israelis um, because historically speaking, one of the things that Israel's leaders have wanted is in exchange for the risks and compromises they would take to cede some power to the Palestinians, they've wanted guarantees of permanent acceptance in the region by their Arab neighbors. So for a long time, the Likud argument was first you get the peace, then you make the compromises. Okay, well, let's see if, if they can be proven right. If these warming relations with, with these Arab regimes uh, lead the, in that direction, great, we'll take it. Uh, it's a win-win. If, if it turns out, however, that 
the leaders of UAE and Bahrain never cared about the Palestinians, still don't care about the Palestinians, um, really are only interested in solidifying an alliance against Iran, um, and are interested in some of the high-tech business opportunities that Israel offers, um, you know, then that will just add yet another facet to the Palestinian tragedy. Okay. Well, I have another couple seconds of your time. If you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations on the podcast, on the website, in our web conversations, please do. Every gift matters. There's a donate link right in our show notes. Thanks for listening and thank you for your support. All right, back to our regularly scheduled programming. I, I really appreciate you bringing this to the human level and, and, and you know, away from, maybe a little bit away from the political prognostication that we all like to, or some of us like to engage in, even if it's, you know, from a place of really caring about the region. Um, you befriended Palestinian families through through organized trips, through through your own visits. Um, can, can you tell us about that at all? Yeah. Um, so it first started when I was uh, an administrator at our congregation in San Francisco, or Shalom, in 1993 and 94. Um, they had a guest speaker come who uh, was the, the head of a... Um, hospital and rehabilitation center for, for kids with disabilities in Bethlehem. Um, and he invited me, since I visited Israel a lot because of my family over there, he invited me to come visit him next time I was in the country. Um, so I did that and, and got to become friends with him. And then, uh, and then in the um, mid-90s, I uh, traveled on a trip that was sponsored by merits when they were part of the governing coalition um, that included getting to spend meaningful time with quite a few Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. And then in 2006, I took part in a professional development course um, called the Summer Peace Building Institute, which is a thing that the that Eastern Mennonite University offers. Um, and that's where I met uh, a, a Palestinian friend named Hussam, um, who also invited me to visit him in Bethlehem. And I got to know him and his wife and their, um, and their kids. And they're in one of these situations where he married a woman who was born and raised in East Jerusalem. And they're in this horrible catch 22 because if you're a Palestinian resident of East Jerusalem, um, if you spend more than a certain amount of time every year away from East Jerusalem, the Israeli government can withdraw your residency permit. And um, this is one of the subtle tactics that the government has used to try to shrink the, the Palestinian population in East Jerusalem and, and make room for Jewish Palestine, uh, population growth there. Um, so they're in this insane situation where, you know, like she is living in her house with him, with their kids, like for a week and then going back for a week to be in the house she grew up in and traveling back and forth for no other reason. So she's not able to keep the job that she wants. And that trip is not easy. It involves, you know, rolling the dice with the checkpoint. 
Um, so it can take 30 minutes or it could take all day. So, you know, getting the, these are these different um, programs led to, you know, my getting the chance to meet people. And the thing that was really a difference maker was visiting their homes um, and getting to know their families. Um, I, I left out a couple other examples, but um, actually I'll just mention one. When I was working as a rabbi at our affiliate in Eugene, Oregon, Temple Beth Israel, um, I got to know a restaurateur in Eugene whose name is Ibrahim Hamida. And um, he is a Palestinian American uh, Muslim from Bethlehem and happens to own like the best fancy restaurant in, in Eugene and had, had been friends with the senior rabbi there. And so um, they adopted a, their daughter at around the same time we adopted our kids. And um, so we ended up becoming very close friends and I was able to visit the home he grew up in and a number of his relatives. And we became friends with his niece who is a school teacher. Um, so, you know, the more that you connect with people on a heart level, the more visceral your feelings are about the conflict. And I have a bunch of visceral feelings about my protecting my family and my relatives. Yeah, um, we should say, I mean, you, it, this is not abstractory. You, you have, um, you grew up spending summer, summers in Israel, right? And, and it's, your, right. I mean, tell us, but it, you're on your yeah. mother's side, you've got- Yeah, my mother's family, most of them live in Israel. My mom's one of 12 siblings and they were born and raised in Casablanca in Morocco. And um, they were part of a wave of Jewish refugees. And in my family's case, they, um, they were severely persecuted and had to flee their home in the middle of the night with the clothes on their back. Um, and so they had a very traumatizing uh, experience and uh, they, most of them remained in Israel. My mom didn't, but most of them, um, you know, have lots of kids and grandkids. And I probably have about 80 relatives uh, who live mostly in Cholon and Batyam. Uh, in, when I was growing up, those were working class suburbs with a lot of, of Tel Aviv with a lot of Moroccan um, Israelis. And, you know, so um, it's very personal for me and uh, uh, with them. And, you know, my, my mom is in her 80s, but she, she also spends time every year with them. Um, she was with them in 2014 when the fighting broke out between Israel and Hamas. And she got you know, stuck in a bomb shelter um, every night for 31 nights. Um, and uh, that was terrifying. And, um, you know, she experienced seeing uh, little children um, who were, you know, absolutely traumatized and terrified by this ongoing thing. So it's like when I went, to visit after that and went into the room in my aunt's house where they were all huddled underground. I, I was enraged, um, you know, just, just enraged. Um, so I, I strongly encourage people if they're, if it's possible to do to 
intentionally become close to people on both sides of the conflict because it will break your heart, but it will give you at least some sense of these visceral feelings that are um, part of what is that people are going to need to find a way to manage. Um, and it's a big ask. It's a big ask of both of these populations to, to find the strength and the courage to, uh, to do that. But you perhaps have, you have a perspective to see common humanity that maybe, you know, others, others haven't had the chance to see. And I guess I would say I all, that's also the product of privilege, right? Like privilege uh, of being an American visitor. Um, right. You know, uh, so, you know, an American visitor who has no trouble going in and out of Israel and, um, uh, and you know, ultimately, like I, you know, so that's, that's the place where I, I, I do, I mean, look, I want to believe that the experiences I've had do give me a, a worthwhile and valuable perspective, but I, um, I also recognize that they're couched in a kind of privilege that gives me a safety net that people who are stuck in the situation don't have. So this sort of brings me back to something you asked earlier about like what might make things better. And I do have one counter, one, one answer I want to offer to that, which I think is not, I've never heard other people really say it. And I think it may even be a little counterintuitive. Um, I think that something that would really help both sides get closer to justly resolving this conflict is if the, if many different powers in the world recognized that what would be required to resolve the conflict in any way, in anything that was fair, like a, a reasonably fair arrangement, um, what would be required from both peoples is an immense amount of courage. Um, the kind of courage that is typically very, very rare and difficult for ordinary people to manifest. So what would happen if the world came together to try to think of ways to help shore up and support and reward that courage, um, to also find ways to reassure um, and provide tangible evidence of safety for both for both sides. Um, that you're, you know, it's one thing to demand that people in another part of the world do the right thing. It's another thing to empathize with those same people. Ask yourself how much courage, creativity, energy would it take to do the thing that I'm saying I think they should do? Um, and after you discover how daunting that really is, to then ask, what can we do to help? those folks find that courage because it's what what's being asked of them is not something that we can assume we ourselves would have the courage to do. Also certainly coming from a position of, of relative privilege as an American born Jew has, who has, you know, had the choice to, to care about this, this region, this conflict or, or, or not. Um, I've, I've really, you know, really struggled with it and and 
you know, with, with, it's like a high, hyper version of, 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 of reality. There's, there's so much to take in to try to, to try to make sense of it. And, and, uh, you know, I certainly have my, you know, like anyone, my opinions, my feelings, you know, I found at times I, I see things slightly different from folks at Reconstructing Judaism and elsewhere who I not only really respect their influence intellects, but have very high, you know, moral, really live actively moral, moral lives that I, that I deeply respect. Um, and what, what I mean by hyper version of, of, re, of yeah, there's, there's always, there's always more facts. There's always another perspective. You know, you can't know everything about this, about this conflict or really anything. And, 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 and the Israeli Palestinian conflict more so. And, and I wonder like, what's, what's the, the, the quote, right, appropriate human response? I mean, you want to have, you want to have core beliefs and values. You don't want to be just blowing in the wind, but, but, you know, totally questioning oneself all the time doesn't seem healthy and, 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 and putting up a wall and saying, I'm right, you're wrong, doesn't seem healthy. So I, I guess, you know, in order maybe to, impact all this positively in some way what's 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 the right way to be a, a human about it mm. that's easy right i think i can only answer that with by you know describing like my own attempt at squaring that circle um i mean what you're asking is sort of the big the, it's a it's a very rabbinic question it's it's the question of <laughs> You know what is God? What, is, what does God ask of you, O mortal? Um, Good thing I found a rabbi. <laughs> um, I think that the the very intensity and complexity that you correctly acknowledged is part of all of this. Um, is a good reason to start with humility, right? Like I accept with humility that. I am probably not capable of having like a pristinely objective take on the truth about anything. And therefore, um, you know, for me, my personal practice is I kind of check in with myself about what my values are. I look around me and evaluate some of the different groups that have um, advocacy agendas. I look for the ones that align most closely with those values. Then I also, you know, kind of consider my, my non-rational points of connection. Um, the, my loyalty to family, um, my sense of loyalty to, um, to Judaism and the, the long-term viability of the Jewish people. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, now I have to throw into that mix of things I have feelings about my, my friends Hussam and Ibrahim's family. Mm. Um, and I have no regrets that now that's in the mix. Um, I think I'm a better human because of that. And, you know, this is just me, but like, I, you know, I also ask for help from a higher power. Like that's part of my spiritual practice is I say, um, 
source of all life, help me out. I'm not sure what to do. And then I make a decision, you know, I'm going to throw in and support the folks who work at New Israel Fund and Women Wage Peace and uh, NIF, I already said New Israel Fund, and, and Rabbis for Human Rights. And uh, I'm going to um, take some of my time and money and energy to support organizations that I feel like I, uh, that, I that I'm willing to um, extend my trust to and you know do that repeatedly and hope that the accumulated efforts of many many people uh you know trying to make the situation better will eventually pay off and sometimes they do um so that's my formula um i mean i also maintain a really healthy humility for not judging where other people land in in making those assessments so um you know as long as they're not landing in a place where you know the group they're supporting is sort of openly calling for uh, a dehumanizing kind of violence um i literally feel like i'm not in a position to judge you know if somebody's sense of moral calling points them to groups that might be to the left or to the right of the ones that I tend to support. Wow. Um, Rabbi Maurice Harris, I really appreciate your time. Um, I know this; these were all heavy topics. From, from where I sit, I really enjoyed the conversation, but I think the, um, you know, I had the easy part and you had the, you had the tough, uh, the really difficult part in, in, in this. So, um, you know, I thank you for your, for being a, a convert, you know, an ongoing conversation partner and, and helping me uh, and whoever else downloads this that really, really think through some, uh, some intense, complicated issues. Well, thank you. It's been really, really um, good to talk about these things with you. And it, um, I feel like your questions uh, try to probe some of the important and often missed details uh, and and dimensions of these issues. So I, I really appreciate that. So what'd you think of today's episode? We want to hear from you. Evolve is about meaningful conversation, and that includes you, especially on these hot button topics. Send me your questions, comments, feedback, whatever you got. You can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. By the way, if you are going to be at the Ahad Reconstructing Judaism Together Conference, uh, March 23rd to 27th in Virginia, stop by. We'll be doing a live recording. And if not, we'll have that, we'll have that recording to you in <laughs> a matter of weeks or, or however long it takes us. Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub, and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I will see you next time. Oh,